Thank you. I'm delighted to be with you, brothers and sisters, today. So much for the background of the words in today's theme, the true believers in Christ. They will be spoken of for convenience sake throughout my discussion in terms of he, but of course include both women and men. Jesus, of course, knows who his true believers are. Others may know who his disciples are by the central characteristic of love as we were so well taught by that lovely choral hymn. To begin with, the true believer, notwithstanding his weaknesses, is settled in his basic spirituality. He is settled, to use another of Alma's phrases, in his views of Christ. So his views of everything else are put in that precious perspective. There are, of course, other kinds of believers who are not true believers. In the parable of the seeds, one outcome was when the seed had no root, those who were typified by this condition are said to have believed for a while, but who in time of temptation fell away. Alma warned us in his own seed analogy about the withering effect when the heat of the sun cometh and scorcheth the undernourished tree of shallow root. Other observations of Jesus add the insight about how tribulation and persecution cause the weak to be offended and to fall away. Most of us here have had the sad experience of seeing some wither because they cannot stand the heat. They are not likely to acknowledge that as the real reason for their failure, but will conveniently choose a cause over which they can then become offended. Another dynamic operates, too. In racing marathons, one does not see the dropouts make fun of those who continue. Failed runners actually cheer on those who continue the race and wish they were still in it. Not so with the marathon of discipleship, in which some dropouts then make fun of the spiritual enterprise of which they were so recently a part. In the Joseph Smith translation, Jesus comments about bearing one's cross and the demands of discipleship and adds, Wherefore settle this in your hearts, that ye will do the things which I shall teach and command you. Settled in our hearts is the phrase. It is part of becoming a true believer. The need for such deep determination fits well with other scriptural descriptions in which words like these are used, established, settled, grounded, rooted. When we are so situated, then let the heat of the sun come. Getting settled also includes achieving a comfortableness with the behavioral standards of the Savior. When we do this, said Paul in an intriguing verse, we will then know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, and we can truly comprehend the breadth and length and depth of things. We can size things up spiritually because added perceptivity comes to us when we live righteously. Should it surprise us that behaving leads to knowing? Could the scripture about blessings coming from obedience to law be any more plain? Those, however, who for a while believe never have these adventures which are reserved for the true believers in Christ. Those who almost believe will never know these joys, for they are far too easily satisfied. Those who believe for a while make only a brief tour in the kingdom, but thereafter they often feel qualified to inform those who know even less about the Church. But the fact is they were really only tourists not natives, who renew the kingdom's countryside. 
The true believers are helped to keep the basic commandments because they gladly do the specific duties of the kingdom. These duties, brothers and sisters, are usually measurable and straightforward. They include partaking of the sacrament, receiving the gospel ordinances, attending meetings in the temple, praying, fasting, studying the scriptures, rendering Christian service, attending to all family duties, being involved in missionary work and reactivation, doing genealogical work, paying our tithes and offerings, and being temporally prepared. The true believer willingly does these duties because he sees their clear connection to keeping the commandments. For instance, proper participation in the Lord's welfare program carries with it this significant blessing. For the sake of retaining a remission of your sins from day to day, I would that ye should impart of your substance to the poor. A great promise. These duties are practical and specific expressions of keeping the first two commandments, the love of God and the love of neighbor. Clearly, we cannot become true believers in Christ merely by keeping the sixth commandment, Thou shalt not kill. Discipleship, therefore, means being drawn by seemingly small and routine duties toward the fulfillment of the two great and most challenging commandments. Of the Ten Commandments, as originally stated, Eight were stated as thou shalt nots, and two required affirmations. Jesus' later statement cast the two great commandments in the grand affirmative. Brothers and sisters, our duties are the basic and implementing way of keeping the two great commandments, because they require us to do rather than to merely abstain. Abstentions do not necessarily move us on to affirmative actions and our duties are the thou shalts in the gospel of Jesus Christ. True enough, the highly developed disciple will have no difficulty translating his devotion to the Savior into loving his neighbor. He will find a hundred quality ways to implement the truths in today's choral hymn. But most of us need stepping stones. While we resist being driven by quotas into doing temple work or scolded into achieving convert baptisms, at the same time, reminders are relevant. As we grow and develop, a reminder in that thing in which by now it may have become a righteous reflex will become less necessary, but only in that thing. Moreover, the duty least enjoyed by us, like the doctrine least understood, may one day be most needed by us. Furthermore, our reminders to do these specific duties are often a call to an unkept rendezvous, an experience we would not want to miss. The true believer understands this. He does his duties even though they are seemingly repetitious, but he is never surprised if duty develops into a new adventure. Great care must be exercised, however, so that in all of this we do not pass off our personal preferences as the Lord's program. We must not confuse our personal religious hobbies with his orthodoxy, nor must we ever pass off a personal obsession as a spiritual impression. Because true believers are meek and lowly of heart, they are ready to be taught things they never had supposed, as was Moses, the most meek man upon the earth. Let the intellectually proud pace up and down in their tight conceptual cells if they choose, but the humble find such too confining. Two other virtues of the meek are that they are not easily offended and do not resist counsel. 
nor are the lowly in heart inclined to see themselves as being above all the seeming routine duties of discipleship. Duties are not to be rejected on the basis of, I've done all that before, as if God were required to supply us with new thrills. Mortality has often been described by the Lord as being like working in a vineyard, never as an afternoon at a carnival. Besides, how could we pretend to be true believers in Christ if we shunned the chores of the kingdom? Furthermore, brothers and sisters, we will find that when we have personal spiritual experiences which keep us close to the Lord, these will almost always occur in the course of our carrying out the specific duties named earlier. Since it is not enough for us to have once been close to the Savior, so was Sidney Rigdon. Alma said, If we have once felt to sing the song of redeeming love, can ye feel so now? Dutiful discipleship creates many happy memories, but does not make nostalgia a substitute for fresh achievement. Instead of having a woeful countenance, the true believer in Christ has a disciplined enthusiasm to work righteousness. As week after week he tries to help people who droop in sin, the electricity of his enthusiasm for righteousness helps to brace and to straighten the sad. Becoming a true believer, however, means trusting not only in the Lord's plan for all of mankind, but especially trusting in his unfolding and particularized plan for each of us. This means much more than merely acknowledging that God is in charge. Alma's warning that living without God in the world is contrary to the nature of happiness was not just for agnostics, but also for passive believers. Putting first things first is vital, as these eloquent words of Malcolm Muggeridge attest. When I look back on my life nowadays, which I sometimes do, what strikes me most forcibly about it is that what seemed at the time most significant and seductive seems now most futile and absurd. For instance, success in all of its various guises, being known and being praised, ostensible pleasures like acquiring money or seducing women, or traveling, or going to and fro in the world and up and down in it like Satan, exploring and experiencing whatever Vanity Fair has to offer. In retrospect, says Muggeridge, all these exercises in self-gratification seem pure fantasy, what Pascal called licking the earth. They are diversions designed to distract our attention from the true purpose of our existence in this world, which is, quite simply, to look for God and in looking to find him and having found him to love him and thereby establish a harmonious relationship with his purposes for his creation." End of quote. Our fully harmonious relationship with God must also reckon, however, with the episode of the young man who told the Savior that he had kept all the commandments from his youth. Jesus then gave him a very customized challenge to go and sell all that he had and give the proceeds to the poor and then take up the cross and follow the Savior. Doing that thing, indicated the Savior to the young man, would take care of the one thing thou lackest. The good and decent young man went away sorrowing because he could not meet that customized challenge. He was clearly an admirer of Jesus, but not a true believer in Christ. 
nor are we if we shrink from our customized challenges. Indeed, would that some of us, like the young man, lack just one thing. But having a healthy consciousness of that which we yet lack can be a needed spur. We may have proved, for instance, that we can play checkers, but are we now ready to play chess? Are we willing to let the Lord lead us into further developmental experiences, or do we shrink back? The things which greatly enlarge the soul inevitably involve stretching. Tactical tests to help us measure how we're doing in developing a spirituality which characterizes the true believer in Christ might include these dozen or so tests. Number one, the true believer has struck a balance between being too content with himself and being caught up in the equally dangerous human tendency of wishing for an enlarged and more impactful role. Alma said, I ought to be content with the things which the Lord hath allotted unto me. Often ignored is the tutoring sixth verse which follows. Now seeing that I know these things, why should I desire more than to perform the work to which I have been called? To develop careful contentment by using our existing opportunities is obviously one of our great challenges, particularly so when we seem to be in a flat period of life. We may feel underused, underwhelmed, and underappreciated, even as we ironically ignore unused opportunities for service which are all about us. Two, the true believer has some Jethro's in his life to give him needed and sometimes hard counsel. And Moses' father-in-law said unto him, The thing thou doest is not good. Thou wilt surely wear away both thou and this people that is with thee. For this thing is too heavy for thee. Thou art not able to perform it thyself alone. Do we have Jethro's who can speak to us with that kind of directness and yet be humbly received by us? Furthermore, since a Jethro may be anywhere, do we listen down and sideways as well as up? And Naaman's servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather than when he saith to thee, Wash and be clean? Naaman did not overlook underlings. Notably, though Naaman expected a dramatic display of healing, he was cleansed by doing a seemingly routine thing. 3. The true believer has a sense of proportion so that Martha-like anxieties do not crowd out the Mary-like choices. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things. But one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Martha was not the last conscientious church member who was confused about priorities. 4. His personal prayers are not the easy casual petitions like the one of which the Lord said, Behold, you have not understood. You have supposed that I would give it unto you when you took no thought save it was to ask me. The true believer's prayers, at least some of the time, are inspired petitions. But know this, it shall be given you what you shall ask. He that asketh in the Spirit asketh according to the will of God, wherefore it is done even as he asketh. The Lord said commendingly to a true believer in another age, And now because thou hast done this with such unwearyingness, behold, I will bless thee forever, 
and I will make thee mighty in word and in deed, in faith and in works. Yea, even that all things shall be done unto thee according to thy word, for thou shalt not ask that which is contrary to my will. 5. The true believer has both right conduct and right reasons for that conduct. He is so secure in his relationship with the Lord that his goodness would continue even if he were not seen of men. He would fill his role in the church even if there were no mortal taking of the role. Take heed that you do not alms before men to be seen of men. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves, not with eye surface as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. 6. When professionally, associationally, or even in the Church, he may seem to have been put out to pasture, the true believer can still say of the Lord and mean it, He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. 7. When he is misrepresented, misquoted, or misused, he still loves and prays for those who despitefully use him. 8. When someone seems to surpass him spiritually and does his thing even better than he, he genuinely rejoices and gives them heartfelt and sincere praise. He never regards colleagues as competitors. 9. The true believer remembers that forgetting is a dimension of forgiving. It is Lord-like. I will remember their sins no more. He really helps others to get deservingly reclassified, and like the Lord, does not mention their past mistakes to them. His generosity reassures the repentant and also beckons the almost repentant, who warily probe the possibility of both fellowship and forgiveness. He can, to use Alma's phrase, give place for the spiritual growth of others. He is truly ready to receive not only the repentant, but to recognize the frail who have happily grown strong. He knows that in the city of Zion there will be many new kids on the block. 10. The true believer is careful about giving offense or causing others to stumble. In writing about the city of Enoch a few years ago, a true believer was used to say these things about how shortcomings beget shortcomings. How often the weakness in one man becomes a temptation to another man. My desire for wealth and gems can cause another man's envy. My temper has at times dissolved your patience. One man's incontinence destroys what little is left of a righteous woman's resolve. One person's lust becomes another's way to wealth. A man's drunkenness becomes another man's excuse for Sabbath-breaking to enlarge his vineyards. 11. The true believer insists that within deprivation there may be opportunity. He can wait for the unfolding of opportunity hidden within tragedy, as did Joseph anciently. When in their later Egyptian rendezvous, Joseph lovingly reassured his brothers, But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. So often, before we can save others, however, we must first be shaped and refined. 12. The true believer is growing in his patience, including being patient in following the living prophets.
He knows that trying to get ahead of the brethren is a sure way of falling behind. 13. He is ready to follow the Lord into soul-stretching experiences, even if it means the schooling of suffering. These words from a sobering sweet letter written to me by a gallant but modest student now at BYU attest to a significant spirituality in one so young, one who rejoices in the many blessings he now has without brooding over those that are now withheld from him. I quote, I have now had leukemia diagnosed for 15 months, although few people even know about it. My goal has been to lead as normal a life as is possible. Hence, the subject rarely gets mentioned because most people I have encountered, doctors included, tend to treat it as a tragedy rather than as an incentive to get one's affairs in order promptly. My parents took the news quite hard, perhaps because my brother died unexpectedly eleven years ago of undiagnosed causes. Most people are pessimistic. However, I have failed to see how pessimism would make, help me make the best use of my time, which is of an unknown length, not only for me, but for everyone. Against medical and parental advice, I have since married and am at BYU, and we're expecting a baby in July. I feel great and am truly enjoying the blessings that are coming from being married in the temple, studying the scriptures, working hard in school, and living each day rather than simply waiting to die. Fifteen months ago, my then-fiancé and I thought that if I could live long enough for us to be sealed, that would be all we would ask for. Therefore, we consider everything since then as a great gift from the Lord. We still dream and plan for a long family life together, and it gives us a certain comfort to know that our situation is in the Lord's hands and is not bound by man's limitation." End of quote. Like Job, this remarkable young man has avoided our usual human tendency when under stress to charge God foolishly. Along with the attributes already noted and the tests cited, the true believer in Christ may be further characterized. He is innocent as to sin, but he is not naive about worldly things. He is kind, but he is candid. He is harmless because he keeps the second commandment, but he is powerful because his righteousness permits him to access the powers of heaven which cannot be handled in any other way. The true believer is serious about the living of his life, but he is of good cheer. His humor is the humor of hope, and his mirth is the mirth of modesty, not the hollow laughter or the cutting cleverness of despair. Unlike those of a celebrated devil-may-care lifestyle, his is the quiet, heaven-does-care attitude. He understands the difference between ends and means and sees that some church aids are, in a sense, scaffolding for the soul, which scaffolding one day will be removed, like water wings or training wheels. He is humble enough to serve tables, but is sensible enough to share his time and talent on the basis of priorities, doing the things of most worth. Like his master, the true believer loves life, but is willing to lay it down or to see it slip slowly away through affliction. If he is given a thorn in the flesh, 
He does not demand to see the rose garden. Let the kaleidoscope of life circumstances be shaken again and again, and the true believer of Christ will still see with the eye of faith divine design and purpose in his life. There is a quiet regalness about the true believer in Christ, however humble in appearance he may be. Hence the true believer's light has become more than a little one. However, he is apt to be quite innocent of his growing incandescence. The true believer's cri de cour, or cry of the heart, is heard, but not always over tragedy as the world measures tragedy, but occurs when he observes the tragedy of sin. For seeing things as they really are, he also sees what might have been. Being settled in his soul, he has a serenity even in the midst of war and tumult. If he lives, he lives unto the Lord. If he dies, he dies unto the Lord. Just as President Brigham Young said on this occasion, I say unto the brethren who are leaving home, when you pray for your families, you must feel if they live, all right. If they die, all right. If I die, all right. If I live, all right. For we are the Lord's, and we shall soon meet again. The true believer can read the depressing signs of the times without being depressed because he has a particularized and perfect brightness of hope. He knows that Christ will lift us up. He does not naively depend on mortal rulers, assemblies, congresses, or parliaments to lift him up, though he is genuinely grateful for any true successes by these. Rather, he has the precious perspective of Joseph Smith, who observed, The laws of men may guarantee to a people protection in the honorable pursuits of this life and the temporal happiness arising from a protection against the unjust insults and injuries. And when this is said, all is said that can be said in truth of the power, extent, and influence of the laws of men exclusive of the laws of God. Besides, the true believer knows that in the awful winding up scenes that human deterioration will be finally and decisively and mercifully met by divine intervention. He understands, therefore, that in such conditions, the sooner one renounces the world, the sooner he can help to save some souls in it. Let us, brothers and sisters, seek to become such true believers in Christ. Let us make our way righteously and resolutely, notwithstanding our weaknesses, to the beckoning city of God. There the sole and self-assigned gatekeeper is Jesus Christ. He awaits us at the gate not only to certify us, but because his deep divine desire brings him there to welcome us. Hence he employeth no servant there. If we acknowledge him now, he will lovingly acknowledge us then. May God bless you as a generation with a continuing rendezvous with tasks you know not of, that you may be prepared. I see you, frankly, as a generation further along the path than your parents' generation was at your same age, settling in sooner in the pathway of becoming true believers in Christ. I see you as a generation fitted before you came here, measured before the challenges were given to you as being adequate for all that you will be asked to do and plead with you, therefore, with some sense of 
trembling and awe for you collectively in anticipation of that which you will be called upon to do. And my pleading today is settle in spiritually, move along in the pathway of becoming true believers in Christ, and then as the heat comes, having been established, settled, grounded, and rooted in Christ, you can stand the heat of the sun when it comes to scorch and to be of good cheer and to lift others up. Such will be your blessings. Such are surely your promises, the fulfillment of which I pray for in love and bear my witness to you as to the validity of the work in which we are engaged. Nothing else is even in the same solar system of significance. God bless you to keep your rendezvous, to be true believers in Christ, and to be so settled that others can look to you for constancy amid turmoil and for truth amid falsehood. And I bless you in the powers of my office that you shall be accelerated in this quest of yours, and do so knowing of my accountability for that which I have said to you this day, but again of your accountability having heard what has been said to you all of which I say humbly, but most importantly, in the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You are not hidden There's never been a moment You were forgotten You are not hopeless you have been broken, your innocence stolen I hear you whisper underneath your breath I hear your SOS, your SOS I will send out an army There is no distance It cannot be covered Over and over You're not defenseless I'll be your shelter I'll be your armor 